Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and my co-host today is Marsha Brownlee. Marsha, how you doing? I'm doing good, Ashley. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, and our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Ramsey. Jennifer, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to talk to you and to talk about something in particular today that we're going to get into, wildlife disease related. Um, but to kick us off... Can you tell us what's in your freezer? Well, are you asking about my personal freezer or my freezer here at the office? Oh, definitely both. I want to hear about the office freezer for sure. Well, the office freezer I mean, is way more people, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> not many people have office freezers so much. Yes. Right yes, we've got lots of office freezers and we've got a really large office freezer that's got all kinds of wildlife carcasses in it that are here for necropsy and examination. Everything from eagles, uh, various birds to, uh, I think there's a mountain lion in there and um, some bighorn sheep heads and some grizzly bear parts. Um, and we also have a lot of smaller ultra low minus 80 freezers that have lots of samples. So things like um, swabs from bighorn sheep uh, respiratory sampling efforts and serum samples from all kinds of species just uh, holding those archive samples for use in the future down the road when we find some use for them some kind of need for them we can pull them from that that sample bank and process them and hopefully put them to good use yeah that's cool kind of like uh, people saving dna before we knew how to sequence it or make use of it <laughs> exactly yeah very cool. Well, what's the, if you, I mean, if you know offhand, what's the story with the mountain lion? Well, I think, um, yeah, so sometimes these mountain lions, and I don't know for sure if I can remember this specific one, but um, the the common scenario with a mountain lion that we might get here for examination is a, a lion that's kind of hanging around in a place it shouldn't be and kind of showing some unusual behavior. Um, and then in some of these cases, these animals are are euthanized, trapped or euthanized, um, and then we're going to do an exam to see if there's anything wrong with it health-wise that would cause it to to be behaving, you know, in a way that's not quite natural. Um, so that's fairly common to see a scenario like that um, where a game warden maybe um, had to respond um, and then decided to to euthanize the animal and. You know, the question is, was this animal healthy or was there something that was causing abnormal behavior? And we'll figure that out. Do you know about how old the mountain lion is? A lot of these are younger animals. You know, a lot of times we find is that these are young animals that kind of, um, they've moved into new areas and kind of searching for their spot and find trouble along the way and maybe find a place where they feel like there's some protection or some easy food sources. Um, and they'll kind of hang around in any places where it's not safe for them to be. Um, so it could be something like that, but sometimes we'll find that they've got an issue that's that's causing them to be, you know, debilitated for some reason or something and that that they're that they're kind of staying closer to humans because they're they aren't capable of moving on out and they'll 
they'll stay around where there's, you know, access to food and things. So um, those are the kinds of questions that we might try to answer with this guy. So Jennifer, it sounds like a little bit of wildlife CSI over there. Yeah, we, you know, we work um, on all kinds of wildlife health and disease issues, but we also do some work with law enforcement here on, you know, all kinds of cases where they're wanting to know the cause of death or if an animal was shot illegally, how and where and with what, those kinds of things. So yeah, it's, it's, it's usually someone's bringing us something because there are questions to be answered. Um, and our job is to get them the information that they need um, to make, you know, to proceed with whatever avenue, whether it's just a question of health, um, was the animal healthy, or whether it was a question of, is this an illegal take or something like that. Gotcha. Okay, so what about the home freezer? So the home freezer, <laughs> the home freezer has got ice cream, of course. <laughs> Must have. <laughs> Must okay. have. The, right now it's the drumstick variety. I love those things. Um, but it also has some fruit and veggie mixes in there that I use for treats for my little chickens. I have a little small flock of chickens, so they get they get berries and veggies, um, and I take them out. Um, and probably some, it's, it's fairly bare, but it's got some, um, let's see, there's probably some frozen vegetables like zucchini and things like that, corn that I use pretty regularly. That's probably about it. So the ice cream would be the most interesting thing in my home freezer right now. <laughs> oh man, we, zucchini. I don't know if either of you have a garden with zucchini in it, but it is the curse that keeps on cursing. <laughs> Yeah, you plant. I used to plant multiple zucchini plants until I realized how many zucchini you get from one yes. plant. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot. One next year, I, I think. I did though, Ashley. I just had this um, stuffed zucchini recipe that I made earlier last week. That was really good. So oh, if you're looking for share. creative ways to eat your zucchini. Yeah, yes, I'm I looking for all the ways. <laughs> I love them. They're on. They're good on the grill. They're good in bread. Mm -hmm. There's lots of ways to use them. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, zucchini. Speaking That's about it. chickens, I was actually, so I used to have just two chickens in my little city yard lot, um, but they have both, uh, well, they're no longer with me. <laughs> um, but I was remembering I had one, her name is Tulip Elizabeth, which was named by the preschool class that I taught at the time. Um, <laughs> and I used to love watching her chase crickets in my yard. Oh, I was yeah. remembering that the other day. They're just, it, there's nothing better than watching a chicken chase a cricket. <laughs> they're pretty funny. Yeah. What? Yeah, Jennifer. What kind of chickens do you have? I I just have a really tiny little flock of four, and they're a variety of things. I have I've had um, Leghorns, and um, I've got some. What are those called? Those um, I can't remember now. The the red ones, um, and then some Wyandots. I've got some of those. Oh, those are pretty. Um, but I enjoy them thoroughly. They're they're amazing little birds and they're just really entertaining. <laughs> they really are. Okay. We've been and thinking about getting chickens because my daughter eats eggs like it's her full-time job. And <laughs> I buy expensive eggs because I just feel bad for animals in cages. And um, I didn't think about the entertainment factor. I was thinking expressly utility, but this is a, uh, I might have to look into this when I research breeds. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I would highly recommend it. 
I, I actually the only thing that I would say is that the downfall of having chickens is keeping them alive through a cold Montana winter. But if you don't <clears> have to deal with that, then yep. I think yeah. it's all upside. Yeah, we're golden there. It's illegal in our neighborhood, but I've I've yeah. been scheming about how <laughs> how I can do it. How can I have radar. chickens in Missoula and you can't have chickens where you me. live on your acres of land? <sighs> Yeah, I'm, I'm going to figure it out. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> so this is all a really good segue into the topic that we're going to cover today. But first, I want to give Jennifer an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about who she is. Oh, yeah. So, um, well, I um, I grew up born and raised in, in southern Ohio and went to the Ohio State University for vet school. Um, when I graduated from there, I went on and did private practice, uh, mixed animal practice for six years um, and kind of needed a change. Um, so I ended up going back to school. I went over to UC Davis for their, um, it's a master's in preventive veterinary medicine with a focus on wildlife and ecosystem health. So I went and did that program. And at the end of that program, I started an internship with California Department of Fish and Game and ended up being there longer than I thought and getting lots of exposure to wildlife veterinary medicine and working with the veterinarians that were there, which was a great experience. Um, but I was ready for a change from where I was living there in California. And when this job opened up here in Montana, I applied and got this job. So I've been here in Montana in this position as the wildlife veterinarian for the agency for 14 years now. Oh, wow. And yeah, and I really like it here. I like our, our, you know, our agency. We do a lot of really interesting work. Um, as you know, Montana's got a vast array of wildlife species, so there's always there's always something interesting to do. Um, wildlife health is a big issue here because we've got big program diseases like brucellosis and chronic wasting disease and things like that that um, are long term. You know, there's a long term focus on those kinds of things. So. Um, really interesting work here in Montana. I, I am curious, just um, how, how, like, how does, <laughs> I'm struggling to figure out how to answer this question because part of me knows that it's probably a lot and then not in some ways. I'll just spit it out. How does the work differ from uh, what you did in California here in Montana? Well, so when I was in California, I was by I was definitely the uh, the the low person on the in the pecking order. I was, you know, mm -hmm. I was a veterinarian, but I was still kind of a student working under those folks. So, you know, I kind of was doing, I was kind of helping them, assisting them, and um, doing you know whatever they wanted me to do. So it was very different from that perspective. It, you know, the work was similar kinds of work a lot of bighorn sheep work there desert desert bighorn sheep which were really cool um, but here you know i i have a different role because i'm actually leading the wildlife health program for montana fish wildlife and park mm -hmm. so it's i have a lot more responsibility here than i did there just because of the you know the place in my life where i was at the time but um okay um, so i have a bit more um yeah, a bit more responsibility um, and kind of supervising other people and kind of trying to direct a program. But it sounds yeah. like kind of the nature of the work and the animals that the the work was doing is is qualitatively very similar. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I did a lot of bighorn sheep work there and um, did a fair bit of elk capture work. Um, California is not dealing with brucellosis uh, like we like we are here and, and chronic wasting disease like we are here. But there was still a lot of, you know, I got a lot of experience there working capture and handling um, things like that that um, that I use here. Um, but here I have a bit more focus on not just the capture handling part of that's part of my job, but also, um, you know, really the, the wildlife disease aspect is, is kind of my main focus here now. Okay. Sorry, I guffawed earlier because I feel like <laughs> Jennifer is just being unbelievably humble here. I mean, let's just talk about your career trajectory for a minute. So you went yeah. to vet school, which is a huge undertaking, achieved that, and then had your own practice, which again, I imagine is a huge yeah. undertaking, never done that. No, I and didn't. Then, have my, I was just an associate. I was an associate veterinarian in another practice. So I didn't own okay. the practice, but I worked. I worked for a veterinarian in a mixed animal practice as a one one of one of three veterinarians. That kind of situation. Gotcha. Yeah. But then you turned around and said, "This isn't exactly what I want." So I'm going to go all the way, seemingly all the way back to square one, be an intern. I mean, that's. I feel like that would be very difficult to be a professional be the person people go to for, to get their questions answered. And then to step into a role where you're really learning again. And like you said, low person on the totem pole. Um, I don't know. I, I have a lot of respect for people that are able to do that. Yeah. I, I mean, it's um, looking back. I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think looking back, I've done some stuff that, that uh, maybe now to think of making those big drastic changes would be hard, but you know, looking back and going from Ohio to California, not knowing a soul there, you know, um, and then same here, going from California to Montana again, not knowing a, a single person in the state, and then going into a completely different job where I'm end up kind of trying to direct a program. It's it was a I guess looking back, it seems a bit more daunting than it was then. I'm not really sure why that is, but. Um, I guess I was just pretty motivated and eager at that time. So maybe that's why I was not afraid. <laughs> well, it's good. Sounds like it worked out. Um, yeah. One of the, the thing really that we wanted to talk to you about today is avian influenza. And I feel like all the chicken talk was a good warm up right. for this. Um, can you tell us, and you know, our audience is primarily sportswomen. So can you tell us about avian influenza, you know, kind of how it impacts wildlife? And then we want to talk about in the context of hunting as well, how, you know, the kind of impacts that that has. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. So avian influenza is a really broad term. There are lots of avian influenza viruses, you know, there, there, um, there are low, low pathogenicity avian influenza viruses um, and highly pathogenic avian influenza viruses. And what that terminology it means is in a lab setting with poultry does the virus is the virus likely to cause severe disease or death in chickens so um, we find low path avian influenza viruses all the time they're very common um, particularly in wild waterfowl it's normal to find those we you know we get reports from um, from USD's surveillance efforts and and we see those just they're just there but every now and then we get an outbreak with a highly pathogenic avian influenza virus. And we've seen this a few times. Um, 
you know, prior to this outbreak that that we've seen this year, um, back in 2015, 2016, we had a we had a kind of an epidemic of highly pathogenic avian influenza come through the U.S. Um, that one was very different; didn't cause nearly as much wild bird mortality. And then this year, we you know a lot of people have seen uh, a new highly pathogenic avian influenza virus come through, and it's caused a lot of mortality in domestic flocks and also in wild birds this time. So there, um, you know, there, there's some potential for transmission to humans, but it's, you know, it's generally low, um, but it can happen there. I think there've been two cases in this outbreak um, in humans, but it's pretty rare. But this, you know, this outbreak um, was a bit unique. So in the previous outbreak, um, across the U.S., there were some domestic poultry flocks that got infected. In Montana, the only documented kind of wild bird was a captive falcon that died. Um, but we really didn't see, you know, a lot of mortality in wild birds. Um, so this year was very different. We've seen significant mortality. In some areas, we've seen large mortality events with large numbers of geese. Snow geese were particularly hit hard. Canada geese were hit particularly hard. And then this year also, um, we've seen a lot of raptor mortality. And that's not just Montana, but other states have reported the same thing. In Montana, we've had a lot of great horned owl mortality um, mm -hmm. and red-tailed hawks um, and some eagles as well. Um, so just a lot more uh, wild bird mortality. And this, this year too, the really unusual thing was we documented it in um, in a little group of domestic or wild turkeys, sorry, wild turkeys over by Billings. And that was an unusual find. And that's pretty rare to, to pick that up. So we did see that unusual. So this this virus, you know, it's not um it's not uncommon for it to affect some species of birds severely, but not others. So wild waterfowl are kind of a reservoir for this for these viruses, these flu viruses. And they can carry these viruses and generally not get sick. So we didn't see a lot of water, a lot of duck mortality. We did see geese, um, but then other species just have a different um, outcome and and pretty high levels of mortality depending on depending on the virus that's that's present that year. So um, hmm. this one was definitely a bit different from what we've seen before. I only have a million follow-up questions. Yeah, <laughs> go go ahead, Marcia. I'm gonna just take it, notes. I'm gonna, I'm, yeah. And I'm going to go in and start with my like non-biologist questions, and then you can take us to the next level with your biologist questions. Um, Ten four. How? So, so my first question is, how does it get transmitted between bird species? Like, how did the turkeys get it? Yeah, well, we so that's the mystery is we don't know how the turkeys get it because generally this virus is shed from nasal secretions or. Um, saliva or feces of an infected bird. Um, so it's pretty easy to kind of imagine how, you know, a goose would get it from a duck. You know, those waterfowl mm -hmm. species are constantly making contact with one another. And sometimes in, you know, they're in, in high, high numbers and high density all close together. Um, the raptors probably are getting it from consuming birds that have died with the virus. Mm -hmm. The turkeys are a bit of a mystery and we don't really know how they got exposed because trying to picture how did a, you know, a group of wild turkeys get exposed to saliva or feces, nasal secretions from an infected bird. 
I'm not sure how that happened, but um, yeah, I think that one's a mystery. That's interesting. Um, and my other question is, what does a bird look like when they're sick? Well, um, if you have chickens, you may know that birds oftentimes don't show symptoms until they're very sick. They're really pretty good at masking symptoms um, because they're prey species. And if they look sick, then something's going to, you know, going to key in yeah. on that a predator. Um, but when they are sick, it, they look they look like a sick bird. I mean, sick birds generally are fairly similar. They, they kind of have... Um, neurologic symptoms with avian influenza a lot of the time. So what we'll see is birds with kind of limp necks or uh, droopy heads, mm -hmm. um, droopy wings. They get pretty lethargic and unable to fly. Um, some of the really weird ones that I've seen videos from folks that have sent them to us, you know, a goose that's kind of sitting on the shore and is just kind of had a hard time holding its head upright. That was a pretty mm -hmm. common kind of scenario. But the vast majority of them are just found dead. Um, right. They die fairly quick if they're really susceptible. So they don't live very long and and majority of them were not seen symptomatic. And then a very hunter specific question. I mean, I think hearing you describe it, we, you know, hunters typically know their prey species behavior well enough to know if something's off, but um, like, it, I mean, I'm assuming they're not safe to eat. Yeah, so I, you know, we wouldn't definitely not recommend someone eating any bird that looked sick. Um, and if they noticed a sick bird, then the best thing would be to call, call us. If they harvest a bird and then, at, you know, once they get up to it, find out that it's sick, they should just call us and let us figure out what's going on. Um, you know, we don't have, um, the thing about this virus is, is most of the birds that are that are sick are not going to be symptomatic for very long. So they're going to die pretty fast. Okay. And, and turkeys are quite rarely infected. Um, so that was a real, a real unusual finding. So waterfowl can carry it. They carry the low path virus often with no symptoms. They can carry the high path virus with no symptoms often. Um, but, you know, human cases from, uh, from that kind of exposure to a healthy waterfowl um, are you know, extremely rare. Um, I think, you know, the case in the United States during this outbreak, I believe it was a person who was um, working in a depopulation, uh, the, the population of a, of a domestic facility, a domestic poultry mm -hmm. facility. So in a kind of a confined, maybe confined area with lots of birds. Um, so pretty, pretty high exposure. Um, okay. But yeah, they don't, they don't lack act sick for very long. They they just generally are going to die within a day or two, probably. Oh wow, that quick. Yeah. Well, people okay. eat sick birds on a loan. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm just people kidding. Eat dead fish on a loan. <laughs> yeah, you take different risks when you're starving. Um, okay. Well, I definitely have follow up questions, but let's take a quick break to hear from our partners. Howdy Artemis listeners, this is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation 
and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. But we're back. So I wanted to circle back to what you said, Jennifer, about um, raptors getting it this time around, as well as some species of waterfowl, like bigger geese. Um, It's, you know, when I heard you talk about Canada geese and snow geese getting it, um, I thought, well, that's not so bad. You know, both of those species are pretty numerous. They could probably handle a decent hit. And then when you talked about raptors, I thought, oh boy, (laughs) that's bad. You know, like they have very different life histories. They reproduce at a, you know, much slower rate. And I don't know. So can you talk a little bit about that? And maybe what do you see? Do you project any long-term impacts to raptors from this last episode? Yeah, I think so. So definitely raptors, um, you know, and, and with this outbreak, we've seen entire nests, um, succumb to the virus. So finding a nest where the, the both adults and the fledglings are all all infected and died. It was a fairly common scenario. In Montana, we didn't detect a lot of bald eagles, but I think that that's probably because the bald eagles are in areas where they're not hanging around people's houses like owls are often. Um, but other states have certainly seen, you know, a large impact on or, you know, a large level of bald eagle mortality and they're starting now on their surveys finding that they've got pretty low um, nest success this year so certainly for this this year i think we're we're going to see a a real impact hopefully um, the virus doesn't come back in the fall we don't see it come back recur Um, and hopefully this is a one-year event that's what everybody's hoping um, and hopefully those eagles will recover in time, but we're definitely going to see see some impacts, significant impacts for for this year, for sure. And another thing that struck me while you were talking about this, I be, I am a wildlife biologist, and so I'm familiar with a, a lot of the ways that biologists try to measure animals and you know dynamics within populations. But what does it look like to try to get a sense for uh, wild raptors succumbing to a disease where they're dead, you know, more or less instantly. And that's, those aren't species that are just like easy to stumble upon, you know, out in the wild. So how does that work? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And so I think if you, you know, if you looked at our Montana's list of the, the animals that we tested and that were positive for the virus, what you see is you see more on there, more species on there that are, uh, generally species that tend to spend more time closer to people. <laughs> um, and you'll also see the counties that um, where we detected the virus are oftentimes you'll see those counties that have more people, more population are the counties that um, had the most positive birds. And that's not because they actually had the most positive birds. That's just because there are more people, more interaction with birds, closer proximity to birds. So those birds are getting noticed and reported. Uh, I have no doubt that in some of our more rural counties, we have mortality that's equal to what we're seeing in these other, in these more urban counties, but it just isn't detected because these birds don't spend time hanging around in people's yards and city streets and things like that, where they're going to get picked up. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
Marsha, did you have something you were going to say? Not at this juncture. <laughs> okay, I thought I heard you say something, but that's fine. No, I was, uh, I was, I was thinking loudly. It's good. Sometimes that's the best way to do it. What I would like to know is, you know, having all of this information and understanding that th this is kind of a cyclical thing, but sometimes there are different outcomes like this past outbreak. What kind of role can sportswomen play in, you know, I don't know if I should say prevention, but mitigating the spread or maybe even just helping with detection like we were just talking about? Yep, absolutely helping with detection. You know, like a, like we just talked, um, you know, there are a lot of places where birds go unnoticed. We, we definitely get more calls from the cities where people see birds in their yards and, and things like that. So from more remote areas where probably hunters or uh, other, you know, recreationists are spending time um, getting reports of suspect cases from those areas would be helpful help us kind of flesh out our, you know, our map of where we've got this virus showing up. Mm -hmm. um, mitigating the virus is tough. I mean, there's just not a lot we can do at this point, but, um, you know, letting us know if there's a mortality event so that we can figure out whether we could go and clean up because we know that those carcasses on the ground or those carcasses on the water's edge in a lot of cases are full of virus. And as the raptors go down to feed and the other birds, the other waterfowl and things, you know, share that water body, they're getting exposed to virus from those carcasses. So making us aware, do we just, we just don't know. I'm sitting here in Bozeman, you know, a lot of the time, and I have no idea what's going on out there until somebody calls and lets us know. And then we'll, you know, take that information and decide how to, how to respond to it. Um, so that's really helpful. Um, you know, other things are just, you know, for me and having, having a small domestic flock at home and knowing that those are they're highly susceptible and the disease is fatal to those birds being really careful about, you know, handling sick wild birds here at work and then, you know, taking mm -hmm. precautions not to take that home and transmit it to domestic birds. So if you are around wild birds or handling wild birds that are sick, especially then making sure that you're not bringing your, uh, bringing your clothes and things that are contaminated, um, to your chickens or to your friend's chickens <laughs> um, and just, you know, not kind of continuing the cycle by just using precautions there. But yeah, letting us know when you hunters, a lot of times we, we see a lot of interesting things because hunters do call us and let us know what they're seeing. They take pictures, which are super helpful. Um, you know, during hunting season, we get lots of phone calls and lots of photos from hunters when they're field dressing an animal and they they see something they're not sure what it is and they take a picture and send it to us um sometimes it's just a matter of us saying hey this is you know this is what it is it's something that's normal don't worry about it but also every now and then it's like hey that's something we're really interested in that could be something important and then we can coordinate with them to figure out how to get a sample for testing if we want to so it is really, um, it is really important. We do rely on that a lot. Um, kind of our eyes and ears in the field where we can't be there all the time. You know, we're kind of um, limited to what, Montana is a really big state. So having mm -hmm. all those folks out there, um, keeping us in the loop on what they're seeing is pretty helpful. Yeah, I remember I took a wildlife diseases course. I mean, back in, I don't know, 2010, 2011 years ago. 
And I remember the photo they showed uh, that the professor showed us when she was talking about avian influenza. And it was a bunch of ducks in a, you know, relatively large pond. And it was like a massacre. They were all just like they had died in place in the water. And it was it was hor- horrific. And yeah. luckily, I mean, my all my time in the field hunting ducks and geese, I've I've never seen anything like that. I mean, I've never even really seen a sick waterfowl hunting. The closest thing is just, you know, a bird that had been wounded that by another hunter that we recovered, you know, maybe the next day or two days later. Um, but yeah, I feel like it would be really rare to come across something like this. And I don't know, it would stick out to me. I would yeah, I, yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's sometimes I know people see something and they may think, ah, I don't know if it's normal or not, but Probably, but it never hurts to just share with us that information and then we can decide if, you know, if it's something that warrants a look or, um, but yeah, it's, it's, we do get really big bird die offs now and then, and, and usually they're on bodies of water where the public can see them. Occasionally though, they do occur on private property and things where we don't have access to, you know, and a, and a landowner might call and let us know that they've seen something odd. So um, yeah, I mean, I mean, even aside from bird mortality, um, you know, we're trying to track diseases in all species of wildlife. So having hunters, um, sportsmen, you know, people that are fishing out might see something, they may see birds, um, and, and just people recreating in parks and things too, um, might see something of interest. See something, say something. Marsha, what were you going to say? <laughs> well, kind of along those lines, like, I think... Um, so Jennifer, the reason I became aware of this issue in Montana is because I got an email from Vanna, uh, my favorite wildlife, regional wildlife Uh, biologist. And, you know, she sends out these wonderful updates about what's happening in her region to, um, to her network. And so, uh, that was the first time I was aware of kind of the, the big hit that is happening this year. And that kind of surprises me that it isn't more broadly discussed and I'm wondering how you feel about that because I think you know public awareness um, can be helpful in a lot of ways and can also be problematic in a lot of ways and so in situations like this where there's not actually uh, a whole lot that we can do um, what are your thoughts about that that low level of public awareness yeah you know we rely on our comed folks to um, kind of make those final calls on what to share and how to share it and when. Um, we did do some, there were, so there were some press releases and there were some, um, you know, I did a Zoom press conference and some different things and there were some spots on the news with the Department of Livestock and, you know, those kinds of things. So there, some of that was, but there is a fine line, you know, and I know we always kind of think about this is there's a fine line, you know, you don't, you want to give people the information they need, but you don't want to give it to them in a way that um, just scares them. You want them to know that what they can do, right? You want them to know what to report. You want them to know to um, protect themselves if they're handling, you know, or picking up dead birds from their yard to wear gloves and that kind of thing and not, not get exposed unnecessarily to a virus. And you want them to know, um, you know, about the risk to domestic birds. So if they have domestic birds, that that's another layer of risk. Mm. Um, So those are the kinds of things you want to get out there. um, But you want to do it in a way that, you know, it doesn't just cause people to 
panic. Um, so there's, that's why we, we have a comment department here that that's kind of, they do all of that wordsmithing and, you know, creating press releases and things. And, um, yeah, it's probably we, finding the balance is I think probably challenging. And, um, you know, I, I feel like I was on the phone and doing interviews and stuff nonstop, nonstop during the whole <laughs> outbreak. Um, but yeah, some of that doesn't get to probably the general public and, and Hunter right. so much. And, and again, this one, you know, this one was not, I mean, I think a lot of people would say this was a disease that didn't have a huge impact on hunters at the time, you know, when it was occurring. Um, so there wasn't a real direct outreach to hunters at that time, like maybe there would be for, you know, CWD during hunting season. Um, but there was outreach, you know, we got a lot of conversations about bird feeders and things like that with folks. And um, so I think it, there was a maybe a bit of a different audience than normal, than our normal audience that we were trying to reach. Um, maybe mm -hmm. not necessarily focusing just on hunters, but trying to get a hold of the general public's attention because those were the people that had the domestic chickens and those were the people that were scooping up dead birds from their yards and, and those kinds of things. Yeah. It's interesting, and I I, um, I always think the agency does a really great job um, communicating. I think you've got an awesome communications team. And I've been thinking a lot lately about conservation. Obviously, this is the water that I swim in. And so um, for me, it's always the top news, even if the news doesn't always cover it. <laughs> so I'm right. always surprised, like, well, how didn't I know about this? Yeah. But that makes a lot of sense, right? You're targeting the people who need to know, the ones who have um, whose who's livelihood depends on it um, yeah. and that kind of targeted uh, communication happening direct from the agency. Um, but again, I'm always just uh, curious about what the news picks up and why they pick it up. And for me, this is newsworthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Newsworthy for sure. Uh, Jennifer, you talked about, you know, the outbreak and it happening now we're like it's a distinct time period like we're past it in this moment how does a disease like this fizzle out so to speak or how does it like you know all the wild birds didn't get vaccinated so what happened well so we we think we're we're at least mostly out of it we had our most recent positive was um what a week two weeks ago um, and we still are getting, you know, um, the occasional sample trickle in. So we think it's mostly done. Um, I don't think it's, uh, you know, 100% gone. But so part of it is the migratory birds, migratory waterfowl are, they are the primary reservoir for these viruses. So when they migrate out of the state or out of the North America, <laughs> um, a lot of the virus goes with them. So that's part of it. Um, other aspects of it fizzling out or a lot of the birds that were left behind are still here were exposed um, and survived and so they have some and you know immunity or they've gotten through the virus and now they're um, you know they're they're regained back to health if they even got sick so so there's there's that too if enough birds get exposed and get antibodies to a virus um, then you'll see cases drop off and so the problem with viruses like this are that they can mutate, right? They can evolve and change and become more pathogenic or affect um, animals that maybe weren't affected the first time. So right now the question everybody's kind of asking is when, 
the fall migration occurs, um, will we see uh, another outbreak occur? And whether that means you know the virus has changed since those birds have been gone and now they come back with a different um, a mutation of the virus that allows us to see more cases again. And that will that remains to be seen. We just don't really know. But I think because this was so different from the, the previous outbreak that we're a little bit concerned that we could take another hit in the fall. So let's hope that doesn't happen, but we're going to be watching really close um, to see what happens when fall migration occurs. I'm curious. Um... I'm, I'm more familiar with how like the annual counts, big game counts impact regulation setting um, in the following years. How does that work on the, with waterfowl and game birds, particularly after an outbreak like that? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not involved in, in those regulations. Um, so somebody else would probably need to speak to you exactly what data they use. I don't, I know, I know there are surveys okay. that are done, um, waterfowl surveys, and I don't know exactly how they incorporate those numbers into their decision, and I don't know exactly what time frame that's on. So I'm not probably the best person to answer that. Okay. I have another question that you may or may not know the answer to, um, <laughs> but you're the best person for me to ask. So I am curious, you know, in thinking about when you were talking about the turkeys that got it, of course, we can't know, but to my mind, I thought uh, maybe interfacing with domestic poultry that were infected, um, you know, over mm -hmm. a food source or what have you. And I feel like, do you know what the what the approach is from domestic like producers um, when this happens, or to prevent it, or I don't know, like what are they doing? Yeah, so I know that um, you know Department of Livestock was really um, doing a lot of messaging around biosecurity for um, domestic birds. They were telling people to keep their, you know, domestic birds um, in an enclosure so that they didn't have exposure to wild birds. Um, so they really focused hard on that part, trying to prevent transmission from those wild birds to the domestic birds. I, that was, that seemed to be kind of their primary focus. Um, once there's a detection, you know, in a flock, domestic flock, it kind of depends a bit on the size of the flock, whether it's a commercial flock or private flock. Um, you know, for these little flocks, in probably most cases, I think all the birds died. Um, and they would, you know, contact Department of Livestock, they'd get it confirmed and, you know, they would um, have them basically lock it down and give them advice on you know, not restocking and those kinds of things. For the larger operations, you know, big kind of commercial poultry facilities, when they get it, they end up doing depopulations in those. And so they have to go in and any birds that haven't already died, they end up depopulating those facilities completely. And then after that, they do a bunch of testing to try to determine whether the virus is still present you know, within the facility. So it's for those folks, it's a, you know, those commercial pop uh, producers, that's a pretty significant, um, that's a pretty significant problem for them. And, um, and then, you know, too, for the little backyard flocks, and I, and I can, can totally understand because I have one myself, you know, 
and we talked about how we like our chickens and um, we enjoy them. So losing your domestic, your little small flock also is, um, that's a pretty tough thing. So um, mm -hmm. I know I was pretty extreme on the biosecurity for myself and knowing that I was handling infected birds at work and then going home. So I was, I was taking pretty extreme measures and handling birds here with at work with on PPE, you know, the Tyvek suit and gloves and everything, and then changing clothes and shoes before I would go home. So it's, it's highly contagious. So biosecurity really is um, probably the biggest weapon against, against the virus and kind of trying to limit transmission. In talking about, <laughs> were you going to ask how to like decontaminate to yourself? Yes, I was. <laughs> Me too. Okay. How do you do that? Can you put your clothes in the washing machine and be safe to play with your chickens? <laughs> how do you neutralize the virus? Yeah. So, so the virus is, is pretty, um, pretty susceptible to disinfecting. Um, but you know, you could carry it on your shoes. You could carry it on your hands and your, so if you went, you know, handled sick birds and the infected birds, and then went to your friend's house and handled their birds, you could potentially transmit the virus. So, um, and you know, as with everything, de decon uh, decontaminating and, and disinfecting um, hard surfaces is a lot easier than decontaminating and disinfecting porous surfaces. So with my clothes here, I, like I said, I would wear an outer layer that was either disposable or could be washed. Um, and then um, change that out and ch change clothes and shoes and go home. But for stuff here, you know, what we try to keep, we have a we have an area here, our necropsy lab, where we do all of that work um, and we keep all of that in there. So we, we have our boots that we can disinfect with bleach. We have Tyvek coveralls and fabric coveralls. If we use fabric, fabric clothing, scrubs and things, we put those in hot water with soap and dry them. And um, oftentimes we bleach stuff too, but um, yeah, just, you know, not using the same clothes without having them laundered and making sure your shoes, if they're, um, if you've been walking around in a facility that's potentially got virus in it, you know, bleach and water solution is the best thing to use, but you know, you don't want to use that on your nice jeans. So if you're going to handle birds that are sick, you want to probably put on an outer layer that you can, um, that you can clean without worrying about damaging it. Hot tip right there. That's good. I was thinking about, you know, when we were growing up, I grew up on a farm and we had our play, play clothes and our nice clothes. Not that our <laughs> nice clothes were like that fancy, but <laughs> Or play clothes, we're on a whole nother level. Yeah, we definitely do that here because we never know what's coming in the door. So we have a we have this one area of the of the office that's our necropsy lab, and we bring everything directly in there, and we keep our clothes in there, and we don't wear our you know contaminated clothing outside of there. So it's um just a way to try to and and again not just for avian influenza but all the other things that mammals carry and things that we could potentially um, be exposed to in there to try to keep it contained so that we don't bring it outside of that facility, that room in that facility. So this is all making me think, sorry, I just have a personal story about let's hear it. Yeah. again. <laughs> I just, so uh, 
So my chicken tulip, Elizabeth, um, I remember once one of the stranger times in my life when I actually took her to the vet. And so I'm thinking about the time in your life when you were a vet in an office um, and I, I took my chicken in and had to give her antibiotics for about a week after that. But I'm just like, I'm imagining somebody like me who only has two chickens and doesn't know much about just like bringing this bird who has avian influenza into the vet. And like, that just seems like a weird situation. Yeah, yeah, you know that that was one challenge with this with this avian influenza outbreak. One of the big challenges was for um, for rehabbers who take in um, wild yeah. birds, raptors, um, right? Because they didn't want to bring in a sick raptor and infect all the other birds in the facility. So the rehab centers, a lot of them had protocols in place. Even our Montana Wild, our FWP's got a rehab center here in Helena, and they they established protocols to prevent that from happening. And, um, but that was something when this first outbreak first started happening, that was a pretty big discussion on how do we deal with this at rehab centers, because they're going to be getting calls about sick raptors. And um, yeah. it did, it did play out. It was a, an issue that came up, you know, that we had to figure out solutions to and that rehabbers had to, you know, luckily be aware that this virus was out there so that they could, basically divert any suspects and make sure they don't bring them right into the facility with all the other animals. And that's uh, one more question, because this is making me think like, um, you had mentioned earlier that it, it, certain strains hit different birds harder, but is it something that birds can get sick and then recover from? Um, or if they get it, uh, is it usually fatal? Um, yeah. So. I, so for these highly pathogenic avian influenza viruses, a lot of the really susceptible species are going to die, most of them probably, um, because once they develop the symptoms that, that you would see um, in the wild, it's really hard to recover. Mm -hmm. They just aren't able to fend for themselves and feed themselves and things. But it is possible for some avian influenza viruses to, you know, for an animal to recover. It just We just don't see that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So one of the things that we always try to ask our guests is for them to share one of their favorite moments in the field with us. And it occurs to me that you might have a favorite moment from your work in the field. Um, so I'll leave it up to you, Jennifer, if you would like to share a hunting story or, um, I don't know, I feel like catching a moose would be a pretty cool story. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I think I have uh, I have a lot of most of my field stories are from work in the field rather than recreation in the field. But um, and I you know trying to think about some of my favorite times. I mean, it, there's a lot of them for different reasons, whether it's, you know, being up on a ridge of a mountain in the wintertime with with uh, doing mountain goat captures um, or, um, you know, but but I think one of the things I love the most is seeing our folks kind of going above and beyond. And, you know, when you work for a state wildlife management agency, you know, some parts of our job are unpleasant. Um, but really, it's it's nice to see that for, for, you know, the folks here, we really do this because we have a passion for the resource. We really, you know, we really value the wildlife. Um, and that's why we're doing the work we're doing. And, you know, just thinking about 
little things that have happened, you know, I, one story that I recall is we had to go and we had to dart a moose because he was in a campground and he was being ornery um, and he wouldn't leave. So the decision was, we got to go dart this moose. We got to get him out of there and move him because he's going to ultimately get himself into trouble or hurt somebody. So we went over, we made a big plan and I were several, you know, game wardens and folks and me and, um, we kind of scoped out the situation and it was in a pretty busy little campground and there was a pond there, of course, because, you know, moose, moose and water go together. And so we knew that we didn't want him to go in the pond once he got darted. Um, so we kind of tried to form a barrier with people and vehicles um, and I dart the moose. And of course, he goes straight for the pond <laughs> and Classic straight through our, yeah, straight through our barricade right into the water. <laughs> Um, and this is a really dangerous situation because it's a really big animal and he's just been darted with some pretty potent drugs and he's going to go to sleep real fast. So, um, you know, you know, in your mind, you're just starting to think, okay, what are we going to do? And before I could even get to that point, one of our game wardens ran into the pond. Um, and I have a picture of him. <laughs> he's standing there. The moose is asleep and he's standing there holding the moose's head out of the water he's in water up you know to his waist or so and he's just holding the moose head out of the water while the moose is just completely zonked and he stood there in the water until the rest of us could figure out how to get the moose out of the water which was a pretty significant production um, but just you know his reaction it was just priceless to just jump in there and keep that moose from drowning oh my gosh um, five stars to him lovely. Sure. yeah god bless the game warden <laughs> those are the kinds of things that i really enjoy when we um, obviously it would have been better to prevent that, but we tried everything we could to prevent it and it still <laughs> happened. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but just to see somebody and you just know that he, he didn't want that moose to drown that day and he did what it took. He didn't even think about it. He just went for right? it and, yeah. and he stood there holding this giant big head out of the water as long as he needed to, for us to kind of figure out a plan and, um, so those are the kinds of things at the end of the day, we got the moose out, we were all mud head to toe, got it in the trailer, gave it the reversal drug and they took it to its new home and he did fine. So that that was kind of a nice a nice ending to a, what it could have been a really pretty sad outcome. Yeah, oh my gosh, a moose head's gotta be heavy. Yeah, they're yeah. pretty heavy. <laughs> and this yeah. is why I love wildlife biologists so much because you go home and you're like, hey honey, how was your day? <laughs> yeah, right. Went so you never know what you're gonna get. Yeah. <laughs> this this story the whole time you were telling it all I could think of was an experience of my own in graduate school I was you know I darted um white-tailed deer we were tracking them with GPS collars and it was in Mississippi largely in swamps so that was a constant fear of mine was that I would dart an animal and it would go down in water and I wouldn't get to it in time exactly and that's exactly what I was thinking in this scenario and then here goes you know the warden just, just going for it. Yeah. And well, yeah. There was one deer in particular that I darted who did go to water. Um, but thankfully, it, it was this ravine that was maybe, I don't know, a foot and a half wide, maybe two feet wide. It was just wide enough that the deer got its whole body into the ravine, 
but thankfully its antlers suspended it oh wow its face above the water and you know the ravine was probably two and a half feet deep so i when i got to this deer there's somebody else with me for the life of me i can't remember who was helping me that night but i had to get down in the water and push up on his chest with my feet well, the other, you know, it's like a 240 pound deer. Well, the other guy grabbed his head and kept that in place while we like heaved him out of the ravine. But I was thinking about that the whole time you were talking about this moose story. And it's like, wow, that is a literally a whole nother animal to think about something that huge. Yeah. yeah. We were talking to Hi. somebody, Marsha, not long ago who had a story about, um, well not immobilizing sedating a giraffe that they had to lead around like lift up its feet and I just I don't know I'm in awe of stuff like that yeah Yeah, that's wild Hmm. how did you end up getting it out of the water yeah (laughs) the moose also that (laughs) yeah um, trains and like (laughs) well luckily we had um lots of rope somebody luckily had a bunch of rope and we had a rubber mat and a bunch of game wardens um and we got ropes on that thing and with one warden keeping the head above the water we were able to inch it up um, toward the shore which was just like mud you know like deep mm-hmm. mud so we're all po- you know just sunk sunk in the mud like quicksand and basically inched it out of there one little inch at a time until we got it onto the shore um and then like, like, like I said, the moose and all of us were just mud, basically from the chest down. And um, yeah, we got it into the trailer and we usually, we use reversible drugs. So we got it into the trailer and then I hopped in and gave it a shot and hopped out. And within just a couple minutes, it was standing there looking at us like, what happened? And <laughs> um, they drove it off and released it. And that's that. There you go. That's, crazy. that's cool. The moose um, slept a good story. <laughs> yeah. I have a question that I don't, maybe this will get edited out if we're getting too long, but it, it just reminded me, Jennifer, some of the drugs that um, I've used in the past to immobilize ungulates in particular are said to have amnesic effects. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered, how do we know that? Like, how, <laughs> how do we know That's that? Good question. Well, probably because we know their effects on humans. Okay. <laughs> that would be my guess. Yeah. I was I didn't know because I figured maybe that's what it was that we were just, you know, translating that over, but I thought, man, yeah. there might, might be a cool well, study he, I don't the know moose about. never talked about it after that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. Very good. Okay. Well, I think we should transition to our weekly closer. Uh, hits and misses what have you been aiming for and how did it go and maybe Marsha you can start us off I don't know Ashley I feel a little pressure today (laughs) I know we've we've been recording a lot of podcasts in quick succession so yeah I just don't know if I have any hits (laughs) um uh um you know um let me think I Misses are acceptable too. I mean, that's what yeah. life is like <laughs> that sometimes. For hours, like I, I got up and I had breakfast, and so far I've met all my applications. <laughs> so oh my I feel goodness. like that's a big hit. That's a big hit. <laughs> we'll stick with that. Very I good. haven't let anybody down today. <laughs> that's a hit. Yeah, that's a hit. That's good. <laughs> Jennifer, what about you? I managed to install a bathroom sink, which was 
wow. an accomplishment for me. But um, yeah, but I mean, my big, if I'm talking kind of big picture, my big hit would be, you know, just um, trying to get a wildlife health program established here in Montana and hiring really good people to help me do that. And I feel like we're, we're, um, we've grown traumatic, you know, tremendously and we're doing a lot of really good work and I think we all are enjoying our work. So for me, that would be a hit. Oh, that's an excellent hit. That was actually our last guest also talked about the project that she was managing and getting, um, a new position and a couple of good new hires. So yeah, that's perfect. Um, my hit is not big. <laughs> I'm, I made zucchini bread today and that took up Yay. two thirds of one zucchini. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I only have like 14 to go. <laughs> yeah. Maybe also yeah. a mess. It tastes good. But, um, have you had, speaking of zucchini again, now that we're full circle in our zucchini <laughs> podcast, have, have either of you ever had zucchini spaghetti? Like, you know, have you done that? The zoodles? Whole thing. Yeah. I've never tried it. I've never successfully made that many zoodles. I've made spaghetti out of um, spaghetti squash, but that's it. Okay, so between now and our next podcast, Ashley, I'm going to make some zoodles. <laughs> and I'll report back. Excellent. It sounds like a meditative experience because I feel like it would take a while. I'll let you know about that too. <laughs> Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. It was wonderful to hear about your work and your insight on some wildlife health issues. And we really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah I learned so you. much, Jennifer. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis Podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Thank mm-hmm. you.